Hi, everyone. It's Adam here again. And I've got another one of our recorded conversations uh, that we do from time to time here at St. George's. And I'm delighted to welcome uh, today Jenny Taylor, who is the Diocese of Liverpool Racial Justice Officer. Is that the correct title? That is the correct title. Yeah, that's the correct title. Uh, and uh, Jenny is we're going to talk about a lot of things today. Um but I think we'll start just by, you know, for people who, who don't know you, haven't met you, could you just tell us a bit about who you are, but also a little bit more about what you do in your role? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much, Adam. I'm really grateful to actually have the opportunity to speak to everybody as well. So I'm Jenny. Um, and yeah, you're quite right. I'm the racial justice officer for the diocese and also for Liverpool Cathedral. Um, but let's do bits about me. Um, I love being outside in nature um i am a passionate gardener i've got an allotment so if you see me there's a really large possibility that you may be given two vegetables when there's a glut okay it's usually courgettes i'll just own that okay it's normally courgettes (laughs) i love roller skating um i love hanging out with friends (laughs) and doing things that generally inspire lots of joy um and i probably to be honest i focus a lot on joy because to some extent my work is quite hard Mm. um being a racial justice officer in any diocese within the UK is quite difficult, but it's probably, I would say, it's a little bit harder hitting in some of the um, cities which have bigger connections to the trade and enslaved Africans because the history there is quite different um, and the response to that history is quite different. So my role is all about helping all of our churches and all of our worshipping communities and every single one of our Church of England schools do the work of racial justice within their own context. So I have, well, we have a racial justice strategy. It's called From Repentance to Repair. And it's really about figuring out how we manage reconciling relationships within our own community and how we bring the gospel into that to bring racial justice to any particular place that we're in. So that's basically the big bones of what I do. <laughs> and I say it's about um, helping us as a diocese to really get hold of this idea of um, anti-racism, mm. which I think is a word that sometimes people perhaps maybe don't really understand because it sounds like you're against something. But I always say to people, it's a bit like anti-freeze. It stops the freezing, doesn't it? Okay, anti-racism is about ensuring that racism doesn't exist and also disappears. <laughs> mm. um, so that's about thinking about things like How do we educate one another so that we understand what racism is? We understand what it looks like, both in wider society, but probably much more importantly, within our own context of church or school. It's about empowering each other. I think oftentimes we can have this sort of underlying idea that some people are racist and other people are not. But really, what we want to do is empower us to recognise that we all hold racist ideas all of us do about all sorts of different people and so that's about empowering us to be able to understand that for ourselves but also to work together to move beyond it so that we become a people who um recognize the dignity and value of all human beings because that's part of our faith and then the third thing would be about evaluating so this is probably most of the work that i do and probably less other people do and that's about evaluating policies, procedures, behaviours, attitudes, things that make up the culture of the church in the Liverpool diocese and dismantling those things that um, that push forward racist ideas and building new systems that are about equality for all people. So that's that's both my work, but really, to be honest, it's everybody's work mm. because it's part of the work of, restoration is part of the work of the gospel, isn't it? God restores us to him first and foremost through the through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he reconciles us with one another in our relationships. So whilst I might be the racial justice officer, I think this is all of our this is it's a role that all of us get to play in different parts, in different ways, to different extents, but it's definitely an everybody job. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean what an introduction to yourself, Jenny. And I, I think one of the things uh, for for people who have not met you, Jenny, is uh, 
when uh, when I first met you, you came to St George's, and we invited mm. you to come and talk because we were aware of of uh, the history of of St George's, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Mm. Um, and uh, we kind of came, you know, came ready and said, "Okay, we're going to be talking about you know the leg- legacy and uh, of the slave trade, and we're going to be talking about racism." Um, mm. And and we spent nearly all the time talking about Jesus and the gospel. And, <laughs> and you know what? And actually that, you know, that shouldn't be a surprise. Actually, that's what, that's the thing we, it shouldn't be surprising. Unfortunately it, it can be. And, I, and yeah. I have to admit my own culpability in that. It's like, gosh, I'm here for this very heavy conversation that I know I have to have. Whereas actually, you know what you said to me that day, and has stuck with me, is that actually no, this this is the good news of Jesus Christ, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll get to that bit. We'll get to that bit. But first, <laughs> first we need to go back. We need to go back. And yeah. you said one of the things you said there was um, being a racial justice officer in um, a city like Liverpool, uh, and it's not the only diocese in the only city, no, uh, but has particularly direct, strong connections with uh the transatlantic trade in yeah. enslaved africans has a very particular edge to it and for us at st george's as we've been looking at during the month of october 2023 has a very particular connection to our church mm. through um the people the, the key players who are involved in the establishment in the financing of the first kind of congregation and the culture you know the first vicar of St George's, Reverend R.P. Buddicum, um, was uh, the son of a merchant who uh, traded enslaved Africans, uh, owned them, um, and was very much part of that set. But finding out lots of interesting stuff about him, at one stage he seemed to be that he was aligned with the abolitionist cause and then changed his mind later on. So there's lots lots for us to dig in historically in, in St. George's. Um, but I think for, for, for some people, and I think I include myself in this, I honestly can say I don't know that much about the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans. And, uh, and so maybe if we could just start by saying, what was it? What was it? Yeah, so I think you're probably not alone. So, you know, I think take that as an, an obvious thing. I think if you live in the UK and you were educated in the UK, the chances of you having an in-depth knowledge about um, that period of history and how enslavement shaped the world is unlikely um, unless you've only just started going to school. <laughs> uh, so unless you're very young, it's not, it isn't that surprising because I guess it's been like the family secret for a very, very long time. It's been a family secret within our own wider culture of society, but it's definitely been a family secret within the church where um, the knowledge of that has sort of been pushed to the side, pushed under the rug, quietened down and it's been quietened for a really really long time and so I think when we talk about it one of the things we probably have to recognize is that yeah a lot of people just won't know very much about it so they don't understand how it's related to the church secondly that when people do realize how it's related that they actually might have quite a lot of emotions about that because it will feel hard um there'll be senses of shame guilt inadequacy the difficulties of just managing yourself in the midst of hearing really really hard difficult information so um and I I think I always say this to people is that we have to be really gracious with one another (laughs) really really gracious with one another because Mm. talking about things like this is actually really hard and it can be very painful um it's painful, and it's painful for all of us. It's painful for people like me, who are um, from that background. It's painful for people who realise that their families are connected to enslavement in some way. It's difficult for those of us who just live in places that are, or serve and work in places that are connected to it. And it's difficult for all of us who believe in Jesus, because there is no way of us looking at that history without recognising how... Um, how far away 
it is from the good news of Jesus. I think probably for those of us who follow our followers of Jesus, that is actually the thing that probably really hurts for us when we recognise that this is something that really is so far away from what we believe. So that's my caveat for this little bit. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Be gracious with yourself, even as you're listening. Um, and, and I guess, and try, if you can, to listen non-defensively. I think that can be really hard as well, can't it? Mm. But um, it's everybody's problem. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's all of us. Like, none of us get to be exempted from it. This is something for all of us. But really, the trade in enslaved Africans is all about money. It's all about greed and money and how to um, extract something from one place for the benefit of another. The UK um, was a major player in the trade in enslaved Africans. Like, and it's not because there weren't any other players. There totally were. Okay, there were French, Spanish, the Dutch. Yeah, there were definitely other players. But um, but we were a major player, um, and that's that's evidence now by the fact that if you look across the coast of West Africa and across the Caribbean and the Americas. Um, the most commonly spoken language is still English. So if you were wondering about our influence, it was quite wide. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm. It's really, really wide. And effectively what happened, what, what we've got is this triangular trade where we um, sold things to Africans in exchange for enslaved persons. And then we transported those enslaved persons to um, the Americas, which includes the Caribbean. Um, and in those places, we used that labour to generate um, commodities that created wealth in the UK. So most of that came back to the U UK. So we um, commodities like sugar, rum, cotton. I mean, if you live in Lancashire, for example, you can't you take two steps without seeing a cotton mill. The question mm -hmm. has to be, well, where did the cotton come from? Mm. <laughs> yeah. We don't grow cotton in the UK, do we? Yeah. We have yeah. a lot of rain. It would not last here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's those it's it's those questions that that triangular trade. I mean, we have this amazing resource, don't we? The um, International Slavery Museum here in Liverpool City. I highly recommend it to anybody. But I think what is tends to be missing from that conversation about the trade is how the church was involved. And I think for lots of us, it is a shock to recognise that the church was as heavily involved as it was. Um, one of the resources I would recommend for that is there's a um, documentary which was created by the Movement for Justice and Reconciliation called After the Flood, um, The Legacy of the Church and Slavery, which does a really good job of explaining how our theology was used to support the enslavement of Africans and to continue the enslavement of Africans. But that's effectively what happened. If you've got to think about the time, the time in which you're talking about, the church and the state are basically hand in hand. They are one mm. and the same. It's not like now where we have quite a separative space, don't we? Church is over mm. here. Governments are over there. But we, we're talking about a time when these two things were enmeshed and the sense of Christianity was much more embedded in the culture of our spaces, in um, yeah, in the way we worked, in, you know, the reasons for having a Sunday off was because of church. That's why it was a six-day week. You know, we it was much more deeply embedded. And within that sense of it being embedded, the church, not just the Church of England, because Methodist, Baptist, we're all, we were very collective on this, to be honest. Mm. We created a system in which we basically said that, um, that the enslavement of Africans was... Um, was biblical on the basis of a very old story about Noah and his three sons. Effectively, yes. yeah, so not everybody will know about that story, but basically Noah gets drunk and is asleep in his tent um, and is naked. Um, one of his sons goes in and sees him naked, um, which in the Jewish culture is an absolute no-no. You should never see another like family member unclothed. Okay, so within their mm. culture, that was hugely problematic. He goes out and he tells his other brothers, his other two brothers, those two brothers walk into the tent backwards so that they can't see their father and cover him up with a cloth. When Noah wakes from his um, drunken stupor, probably quite hungover, 
he curses his youngest son, Ham, and tells him that he will be a servant of his brothers for all of his days. Mm. That story about Noah's embarrassment about being found naked is the story that we theologically use to say that the descendants of Ham should be servants always, so it was okay to enslave them. Mm. And more importantly, we decided that those people must be brown. Mm. There's no indication that Ham was brown or that Noah is actually of African descent. In fact, any of the people in the story, I mean, they may have been brown, right? But they're brothers. So wouldn't they all have been brown? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's 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 so the, this is the story. It's sort of called the Cur- the curse of Ham. Is this the sort of narrative that was create you know created or were propagated by Christian ministers of yeah. different denominations, but in the Church of England, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and we we actually we've looked at this passage um, in St George's recently. We, you know, we yeah. and um, it, and it's it's very interesting. You know, that it, it, I mean, it's bad. It's not just bad theology; it's bad biblical studies. Um, so you know, it's it's a bad reading of the Bible. So first, you know, just re- on a straightforward reading of the text, um, it is not Ham that is cursed; it is his son Canaan who is cursed. Rather, so it, you know, Ham's other children are not cursed. Not cursed. And that inc- <laughs> Egypt, Egypt, Cush, which you know, I mean, obviously, we're talking about a theological story. It's got this. Um, dare I use the word mythological elements, you know, that mm-hmm. it's trying, it's speaking into, um, it's speaking to, you know, a world which is very far from our own. But actually that that passage from, from Genesis, Genesis chapter nine, where this happens, happens within essentially the, the, the wider story of the Noah story is about the story of the essential unity of human beings. Uh, that God makes this covenant with Noah when he comes off the ark, where he makes it, this covenant with him and his sons and every every living creature, every living person. Yeah. And um, and then the story about the sons and the names of the sons, having these names of places, is kind of essentially the message of the story is that, that there is a theolo- theologically, they have a common ancestor. And therefore there is a sense in which they all bear the image of God which God has given only to humans, not to animals. That is the essential difference in the Genesis story. It's not between types of humans. It's between humans and the rest of creation. Um, So it was a very, very, we can see now as a very bad reading of the Bible, but it was also a very convenient one, wasn't it? And I think that's really it, isn't it? Um, I am sure, you know, the people, when we think back sometimes, I think we can vilify people who, sort of create these sorts of narratives but I think we all have the capability of doing that when it suits us because that's all this really was anybody who had been to the Caribbean would have been aware immediately that the way in which we treated other human beings was abhorrent so instead of doing something to stop that we chose to find a way to appease how we felt about what was happening by effectively creating classifications of humans mm-hmm. because that's all that is and that's really where white supremacy is born from this idea that some humans are not just more important than others but actually that some humans are closer to god and those humans who are closest to god have skins which are paler and those mm-hmm. who are furthest away from god have skins which are darker and that is that that idea, that separatist idea of a classification of humans and therefore their worthiness and dignity and ability to be free or not, we planted that right at the beginning with that story. We separated Noah's sons from one another, despite their common ancestor, haven't we? We've separated them out and made one of them less worthy than the rest. And then we placed that idea of less worth upon all Africans, regardless of who they are. All persons of African descent. That then, like, it didn't, it would be wonderful if it even stopped there, but it didn't. It then just became everybody who gets classified as other, everybody who's not us then becomes, it falls into this dark space. Um, And I guess the other thing about that time is us having to recognise that um, 
that we have not just families in the churches who are connected to the enslavement of Africans, but also organisations that were part of the church that weren't just connected, but just owned people, that owned people, that used their labour, that worked them to death and that branded them, and at the same time called it Christian. Mm. That's our truth. And I think there is a real need for us as a church to acknowledge that space. It's hard, but we do have to own it. It's got to belong to us because it's our ancestry. It's our shared ancestry, isn't it? I'm here as a black Caribbean descendant woman. It's still my history as much as it is yours. Because mm. we're both followers of Jesus. So this is our history, isn't it? It's not an us and them. And I think we really have to push against this idea that we are somehow separate in this fight for justice because we're not we are on the same team <laughs> we have mm. to be people who were running together but yeah i guess that long history of the enslavement of africans part of the problem that we have in the church is that what we really want to talk about is our part in abolition mm. because that's a lovely part to talk about is it we want to talk mm. about how we help and i get that i totally get it but we can't talk about we can't talk about abolition if we don't talk about our part in creating the system in the first place. And we also can't talk about abolition if we don't talk about black resistance. Um, abolition didn't exist on its own with white Christians in Parliament and in protests in the UK. That was, that was a support to the black resistance that was happening on the ground in almost every single one of our colonies across the globe. So it's it's not, it isn't a, it's not a space where white Christians realised something was wrong and did something about it. It's a space where black people of many different um, nationalities, people groups, languages and religions chose to say, we will not sit back and be killed by you forever. And then some white Christians realised that they wanted to join in that fight of justice. Mm. And it does need to be told from that perspective because it isn't, it isn't a space where um, people who were enslaved had, were powerless. They, they chose empowerment, even though empowerment generally meant death. Mm. And it's important that we recognise the sacrifices of the very many, honestly, hundreds and hundreds of, of enslaved Africans who died for the cause of abolition. Mm. Um, were murdered in hundreds for the cause of abolition. We can't pretend that that didn't happen and that we did something special in Westminster. That's not an, that's, that's not an appropriate way to tell that story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think, yes, that story is a big story, isn't it? And for you guys at St. George's, it's also a much closer to home story, isn't it? Mm. Um, and it's not the whole, I think sometimes we can think that it's the whole story, but it isn't, is it? It's not the entire story of St. George's. We've um, no. done loads of amazing things as well. I mean, wonderful things have happened in that space. Um, and I actually, for me, I think that's a really good thing because I think it helps to remind us that even when we start out with something that isn't very good, God is able to turn that into something beautiful, turn it into something meaningful, turn it into something that's impactful for our society. He's able to turn the stuff we mess up into something that speaks and calls us into what God's kingdom could look like. Absolutely. And that's the hope, isn't it? Because I think if there yeah. isn't that, isn't that, there isn't that hope, then then really, you know, we, we, sh we should give up. <laughs> Actually, you know, <laughs> if the, you know, if, if there is no... Yeah, there is no hope. We should, you know, what's the point? What's the point? Yeah. Um, I, I think, um, I mean, one, so one, I guess a question that some people might have in their mind is um, to say, to, to, you know, so we've talked about, it's just important to acknowledge the truth, acknowledge the truth. And, I, and you know, you've, um, there is much more to say than what you have said about the truth of the church's engagement yeah, in that in that space in that in that practice in the in that crime you you could say um or perhaps better for us as christians in that sin you know the church's involvement there um 
but some some might be thinking, but that was that was then. That was them then. And, and we don't do you know the 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 transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans is now illegal. It is. It wasn't As, either. I think it is important yeah, to note it yeah, wasn't yeah. illegal at the time. No, it wasn't illegal at the time. No, it, it was wasn't illegal. It was it was business. It was good business. Mm-hmm. It was it was sensible business in a way, wasn't it? You know, mm-hmm. it was you know, you were you were making you're making good profits. Yeah. Um and um and you say that that was then and uh but this is now and so you know you know bad things happen in the past. You know, they do, they have. They do. You know, but what you know, what is what is that connect you know, the connection is historical, but what's that, you know, you had historical racism then, but we have contemporary racism now. What is the connection? I guess is a question uh, for between us to, those to, two, between those two, and also like actually that sort of connection of how do we, how how should we think about, you know, that history and its relevance to the present? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question, and I, I think it's a, it's a really understandable question actually as well. Um, and I would say the reason that it matters now is because, like all things that happen to any one of us, um, our present is shaped by our history. Mm. So the present iteration of the Church of England is shaped by its history. And unfortunately for us, it's been shaped poorly by its history because actually we're only just acknowledging that sin now. Like it's 2023. Mm. Slavery was abolished in 1807. It has taken us us 200 years to acknowledge our part, which means that for 200 years, we have sat in denial of the part that we played, which meant that we couldn't have learnt anything about how, well, one, how to ensure that that didn't happen again, which would probably be a great one, but also recognising how it's shaped the way in which our culture has evolved. So not just within the church, but within the whole of society, that, that's, that time where we enslaved Africans shaped the way we think about people. It shaped what we believed to be true about people, about who can do what sorts of things, who can go to certain places. It shaped how we value one another. Um, racism is a sin against humanity itself. Because what it actually does, it says that if you look a certain way or if you're from a certain place, that God values you differently and he values you less. Mm. That you are of less importance, that you are of less worth, that you are disposable within humankind because you're not really a proper human. That idea has shaped the way that church expresses itself, particularly the Church of England, but I'd say it's true for Baptist and Methodist churches as well, URCs, like across the Christian communities, particularly the Western Christian communities, although, uh, well, maybe not actually, across the globe, really, it's shaped the way Christian communities have evolved so that those ideas about who people are impact everything else that we do so it impacts who gets to speak in church whose um whose stories get heard how those stories are told um who's allowed to be in ministry and who's not who we assume is educated and who's not who we assume is able to serve and who's not and in what way are they allowed to serve all of our our whole shared common life is shaped by this idea that some people are worth less than others. Mm. Now, I would say usually when I say this, people say to me, no, but I treat everybody the same. Okay, that's just not going to be true. Like, I really wish it was, but it's just not true. We are all socialized in this world. I know that I don't treat everybody the same. Would I like to? Yes. Am I good at that all the time? No. (laughs) None Mm. of us do, because all of us, are shaped by the racism that exists both within our society and within our church spaces. Because the two aren't separate, are they? You know, it's not like when you become a Christian, 
Like you just live your whole life in this Christian community of like wonderfulness and you never ever talk to anybody else until you're not impacted Mm. or you suddenly forget everything you knew before. That's not how life works, is it? All those influences that exist in our society are pulled into our church communities. And it's for us as church communities to bring those ideas, ways of being, ways of thinking to the gospel and go, does that match up with how Jesus is asking me to live? Uh, Or do I need to change it? Do I need to bring it and repent of it and then do some work of repair? So I think that's the link really is that we created a system that meant that racism flourished within our society. Um, And then we didn't do anything about it for 200 years. For 200 years, we just pretended it didn't exist unless something really, really bad happened. And when something really bad did happen, so think of things like the murder of Stephen Lawrence is a really good example of this. When really bad things happened, what we said was, oh, we're not all racist. There's just a couple of bad apples in the cart. Like there's just a couple of really bad racist people, but the systems we have are fine. The things we're doing are fine. Even when in 1999, when the McPherson report came out and that talked to about institutional racism even after that our response has been the same we know there are a couple of bad apples sure we can we can all agree to that let's just get rid of them and then it'll all be fine forgetting that that whole phrase about bad apples comes from what happens when you put a apple that looks good but is rotting on the inside inside a full barrel of apples what happens is all the apples become bad apples rot Mm. just spreads like mold just spreads doesn't it yeah it Mm. spreads to all of it um and so that, I think, though, is probably quite a hopeful thing. If it's all of us, that means all of us can do something about it, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We can. We each have a part to play, but we can't just sit back and ignore it, um, which is what we've done. We've spent all that time ignoring it, which is why it now feels incredibly painful, by the way, <laughs> because we've spent so long in denial. But we're not in denial anymore. We really are. We're in a space where our eyes have been opened, where we're starting to acknowledge what's happened. So then we get to plan for a future where all of God's people of every single tribe, nation, tongue and language get to come and be together in unity because that's God's heart for us, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that brings like for us as Christians, because I think this is not just something that's happening in the church. Uh, mm. It's something that's happening in, in society and it, and the conversations are painful yeah. in, in in everywhere really but for us as christians um you know this is where we our faith comes in and i think um you know what you were saying there that sense of not talking about something for 200 years that's in some ways that is the very natural human response to sin isn't it is you know so adam and eve in the garden Mm. um the first thing they do is they eat the apple they realize they that what they've done, they've done something terrible. And the first thing they do is they go and hide. Yeah. And, and they cover themselves up. They, they don't want to be seen. They, they, they just kind of want to pretend it hasn't happened. And, you know, God goes looking for them in the garden. Where are you? And, you know, they, they you know, that mm. that is just, it's our natural response, isn't it? To, to, to yeah. cover it up. But the, the mess. I guess when we read the Bible and we see, you know, what Jesus comes to do is he comes to say, you don't need to do that. <laughs> Actually, you don't need to do that. It's it's a very very uh, kind thing. Actually, Jesus comes to say, you don't need to do that. It's painful for you to do it, but you don't need to do it. Um, and there's this um. In the um, the film you were talking about earlier, after the flood, which I hope we'll get to show at some point in St George's, uh, Miroslav Volf, who's one of the theologians involved in the mm. in that film, he says, and that's why repentance in the Bible is as much a gift as forgiveness. Yeah, um, because actually there's something very very liberating about the truth. It's painful. It's horrible. It's a horrible thing. It's it's like it's like being sick, <laughs> you know. It's not being sick, you know, vomiting. Yeah. You know, you mm. have that horrible, queasy feeling, and then the actual moment where 
you know, you hurl. It's horrible. It burns, it stings. But afterwards, there is, you know, yeah. And and what we're talking about here is not just about how do we feel better about something bad that's happened, but that sense of actually things can only, you can, things can only get better Mm. if the truth is, is revealed and there is that acknowledgement. Otherwise it just continues and it's there and you can ignore it, but you still have it there. You still have that pain. You still have that. Yeah. I think it's a bit like, you know, um, if you sprain your ankle um, and it doesn't hurt too much, you can choose to ignore it for a bit, can't you? You can choose to ignore it. You could, you know, you might strap it up keep walking on it don't choose to rest it like I've got stuff to do I'm just going to keep going but eventually your foot gets really swollen and actually if you don't have very strong bones in fairness it may turn into a break at some point because you don't take care of it that's kind of how I think about this issue in the church that's what we've done we've allowed the foot to swell and swell because we wouldn't stop and take note of what needed to change um and I think and that's the point isn't it it's like it isn't enough to simply acknowledge. Acknowledgement is massively important because how do you how do we repent from something if we don't even know what it is? Like if we've not acknowledged there's a problem, we can't ever get to the space of repentance, can we? But repentance always brings with it life. It brings with it energy for change. It directs us to do something new because it isn't just about, well, I'm really sorry about this thing and that's really bad. It's about redirecting our lives back towards Jesus. Like, imagine the impact the church could have in this space of racial justice if, as a whole church community, we decided to redirect our lives back to the way that Jesus wanted us to live together in unity. How much of a difference could we make in our local communities, in our schools, in our families, mm. at the supermarket? I just think the the potential for God's goodness to overflow is unmatched. But to do that, We've got to walk through the really difficult space first. Yeah. So let, let's let's talk more about Jesus in this, con- <laughs> in this conversation. Um, so you know, for for us as Christians, we we you know we we have we have we have this gospel, we have this faith, we have um, we have the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit, we have hope. This hope, a vision mm-hmm. of what humanity can be, what humanity will be, what the world will be, the entire mm. entire cosmos. What you know, how does that speak how does that speak into us at this moment, do you think? You know, this moment where we are, and recognizing that we're all perhaps in slightly different places, but culturally, like the 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 cat is out of the bag now. Yeah. You know, there, there's no getting this back in the box, I don't think. Um you know yeah how how might our faith shape what where we go from here okay so i would probably draw you to zacchaeus's story so if you ever went to church you probably know a song about it if you were a kid as well (laughs) zacchaeus is a um is a fraudulent tax collector in his community so he effectively just steals from everybody he does take the money that he's supposed to take, but he always takes extra. And he's been taking extra for a really long time. And when he meets Jesus, Jesus comes to his house and eats with him. His life is radically changed. Not like a small change, a massive, massive change. To the point that he, in his repentance, chooses to say that he will repay the people that he stole from seven times more than he took from them so he's doing more than just recognizing that there's a problem or that the problem is with him um he's done that bit he's gone to jesus and jesus forgives him and his forgiveness though turns into something tangible that actually impacts his life as well as the impacting the lives of people that have been harmed um So I think when we think about racial justice in the gospel, that is what we should expect to see. We should expect that if we choose to bring this before Jesus, 
that our lives will be changed. Not just the lives of people who were racially marginalized, their lives will probably change too, but we should expect to see something different in us. I think it's impossible to meet Jesus and ever be the same. <laughs> but mm. It's impossible for that to happen. If you have met Jesus, you will be changed, entirely changed. I think it allows us to, when we come to Jesus with things like this, I think it allows us to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for change, but also to really... Um, put down guilt and shame because guilt and shame are like they're really it's not that they can't ever be useful but I would say in this particular context and I am particularly talking to white people about white guilt and shame I would say in this context they are a barrier they're a hindrance they don't actually help because what they tend to do is restrict and leave people in a space of feeling too overwhelmed like this problem is too big couldn't possibly ever fix it the hurt is too wide it's too deep it's been going on for too long there's no way for us to do anything about it well that's what happens when you let guilt and shame um take the space of jesus's love in the conversation because actually when we really love somebody and they are injured we move we're moved with compassion aren't we for them and i think that's what we should that's what we need to lean into. When we lean into Jesus's love for us, his ability to forgive us, it should lead us into a space of compassion for others, compassion mm -hmm. for people for whom this isn't a educational exercise, for those of us for whom this is a lived experience of harm. It should mm -hmm. move us with compassion. That compassion should compel us to actually do something. <laughs> not just sit back not just go that's really sad oh I'm really sorry that you're having to go through that it must be really hard it's fine like totally do affirm people in their difficulties and their sufferings mm. but really it should lead us to a space of being compassionate and compassionate enough to actually advocate for change rather than just being a people who sit back and go oh it's really really hard but I don't know what to do so we have mm. to be able to put down the guilt and shame um, I try really hard not to leave people in a space of feeling guilt and shame about this history. Um, and I guess I do that partly because it's not just your history or just my history. It's our history. We have to hold it together, don't we? We have to hold it together. We have to find a space of unity in that to go. All of us, to some extent, have been Zacchaeus. <laughs> we have. We've all been that person, and sometimes we might still be, and yet Jesus calls us into relationship with him. And in that relationship, what we're met with is the person of grace, a person of absolute, unconditional love. And when we make space to receive that for ourselves, I think as a church, we've got to be able to do that. We need to receive grace for our sins. Because there is no, it sounds really awful and when I put it like this, but I'm going to say there isn't really a way, a way for us as human beings to repair the rift that's been created through the enslavement of Africans and the continuation of racism within our church. Mm. I, as an individual, cannot do that. You, as an individual, cannot do that. Even if we were in solidarity with hundreds of thousands of people, actually the work of the Holy Spirit that's really what we need in this, isn't it? We need the work of Jesus in our lives in order for us to be able to meet one another with grace and love, to work together with grace and love to change the, the situation that we're in and the future that we want to see. And all of that comes through being empowered by God's Holy Spirit, um, not because of our really good works. So I don't know if that really answered your question, though. <laughs> I don't know if it answered it either, but it was it, it was good. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jenny, I think, you know, this has been a really, really helpful conversation for me, and I hope for for, for anybody who listens to this. Um, is there is there any sort of final thoughts you kind of anything you sort of, you know, that's sitting on the table which uh you feel like, ah, you know, this to bring this kind of conversation to a close. So I think 
Um, yeah, my thing would be sometimes we need a little bit of help with the practical action, don't we? Like we're aware that it's a problem. We want to do something about it. And we're like, oh, well, we might even be quite energized. And we're like, well, what do we do first? Where do I go? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? So I think um, there's a, a pastor called Pastor Agu Arukpu who leads Jesus House in London. And in 2020, he put out um, this list of 10 things that churches could be doing to help the work of racial justice move forward. I'm not going to give you all 10 because 10 is too many, but I would say that there are five, five of them, um, or maybe six, really, six of them that are particularly important to individuals. The first one is to acknowledge the truth. Um, so that's acknowledging not just the back history, but acknowledging personally where are the time that, that I'm part of the problem. I am part of the issue. Me, you, all of us, we are part of the issue. But the, we're the reason that we don't have racial justice in our churches. It is actually us. So acknowledgement is the first one. The second one would be to audit. Audit your own life. Have a look. Be really self-reflective, which I know can be really hard for some of us, but be self-reflective and go, well, where, where have I been part of this? Where have I not spoken up? Where have I allowed things to happen that shouldn't? Um, where have I been part of the oppression of others? That's really difficult to do, but it's really important. And then I'd say start having some good conversations like this one. Start yeah. with the people in your vicinity. Start talking to people about the work of anti-racism within your own community. Figure out what the issues are for you and your people. Start having some conversations. Um, I think there is always a knowledge gap between those of us who experience racial oppression and people who don't often experience racial oppression. It's really hard to understand somebody else's point of view, isn't it? And I'm going to go out here and say it's really not okay for you to come up to other brown people and ask them, what is it like to be you if you have no relationship with them? Please don't do that. <laughs> but there are so many educational resources out there, books, podcasts, TV shows, films, like you name it. There are, there are resources that you can use to help you understand both the historics of this um, issue, but also the present day reality for black and brown people in the UK. So educate yourself. And then the fifth one would be speak up. Even if you're scared, even if you think it might maybe not be racism and you're not really sure, speak up, speak up when you see injustice. Do not stay silent. You don't have to be like aggressive about it, but it's okay to say to somebody, you just said this. This is what it sounded like to me. Is that what you meant? Because it sounded, it didn't sound good or that sounded quite racist or that thing that you did seems like you were excluding these people. Is that what you were trying to do? Speak up. And then the last one would be, in order to do all of those five things, we need to be people that pray. Pray for yourself, pray for each other, pray for your church, pray for your community. Expect Holy Spirit to empower you to do these things because trying to do stuff by yourself is actually really hard. <laughs> mm. And I think that sense of continuing to come to God in prayer allows us to, it takes some of the weight off, doesn't it, as well? I think if we're trying to do it all of ourselves, we burn out really quickly. It's really, really hard. But actually, it is the Holy Spirit who empowers us for change. So in all that we're doing, is to continue to pray. And don't think that praying is doing nothing. It's really not. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think the events of 2020 and George Floyd's murder and the outcry that happened after that would not have happened, would have happened if it wasn't for the fact that all over the globe, there were black and brown people in spaces where they are racially marginalized who have for years been crying out to God saying, I need them to hear me. I need you to hear me. So keep praying. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. And I think for, for those who are watching or listening, please pray for you because your job is, it's a big one, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but, you know, don't let's not hear. And I think you've, you've been so gracious and clear with, with us uh, in this conversation that this is not your work. It's not your job to fix racism in the church really of England, not. in the diocese, no. of, diocese of Liverpool. And and as you say, this is not a case of, you know, it's not like fixing a boiler. 
it's not it, it's actually it's it, this is something that is going to require the you know the blood of christ the power of the resurrection yeah um but that's that's what we have yeah we and do. that's what we have so i, I just want to say thank you jenny um I'm not sure exactly when you're listening to this, but Jenny is coming to speak at, to preach at St. George's uh, on the 5th of November, uh, 2023. So if it's past the 5th of November, you've missed her, but if it's before you can come along and, um, and she's going to be our guest preacher for the day um, and preaching about Jesus. Uh, and um, we're, you know, we're delighted to, that you're, you're, you're coming um you're coming to to bless us actually with your preaching ministry um so we're going to end it here say thank you if you've listened all the way through and it might be that as jenny said that some of it's actually been quite a challenging listen or there's emotions if you've listened to this and you're feeling no emotions uh, i'd be surprised um there'll be emotions I encourage you not just to to not just dismiss those or just to move on and listen to whatever your next po- podcast is or whatever the next YouTube video is. Just sit with those for a minute and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what it is that he might want to show to you and your place in this story, because you have a place and you have an important part to play as we all do. So um, just allow, you know, allow those things to, to settle. As Jenny said, it's taken 200 years to get to this point. Um, so yeah, I don't think we're going to fix it by next week, are we? No, like, no, exactly. Exactly. So it will take, you know, it will take time. And, you know, I, I, I this is not the language that I generally want to use, but a sense of that, this being a journey. But that sense, not so much in, you know, that can be a very cliche thing to say, isn't it? But that sense in which actually some things take time. Some yeah. things take time. Um, so your thoughts today, just just hold them where they are. And actually, you may find that there are real actions that God is calling you to. But thank you very, very much for listening. And thank you, Jenny. Oh, thank you for having me. Fantastic.